Because the question is, is Mormonism a cult? I have leukemia. It's a trial and it sucks, but welcome to the club. That's why oh, I have to stop you right there. To say that being gay is a trial is disgusting. That is offensive. You don't that think is dying like saying, early is disgusting no, 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 to no. me? Even after giving women the priesthood. I don't see where it ends. You hear this, boys? They'll never be satisfied. I have a book for you, broads. It's called If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, Then He'll Ask for a Glass of Milk. Cosmic law, multi-dimensions, everything so expansive. And all that information, part of it is being channeled through the mind of fallible people. Finitely got the message about no polygamy God. But now that I got like a better signal, Joseph Smith's like, not an abomination, marry 14 year olds. Like reading you God loud and clear. Finally got that one right. Is that what you're talking about, Quigu? Welcome back to the Mormon History Hoedown. My name is Kara Burrell. Sometimes I go by Nuanto and sometimes, you know, gigantic YouTube channels like Jubilee have middle ground episodes where they invite a lot of my ex-Mormon friends and then some pro-Mormon podcasters, Mormons versus ex-Mormons, can Mormons and ex-Mormons see eye to eye middle ground. Originally, it was called Is Mormonism a Cult? So I thought that I would not just react to that video, add a little bit more context, tell you where I would sit down and, you know, agree or what I would say. And overall, I think that the panelists, both Mormon and ex-Mormon, uh, brought up a lot of good points. So if you've seen the Middle Ground video already and you're like, well, are you even going to add anything else that I haven't heard already? You're just going to react to it and add your little ex-Mormon's opinions? That will be happening for sure. But I know too much background about all of this. I was in the group chat. So if you like your girl Kara over here and you like multiple camera angles, uh, please make sure to subscribe. So if you don't know what any of this is, don't worry, I'm going to bring you up to speed really quick. Jubilee, gigantic YouTube channel, has probably 6 million subscribers at this point. And they do all kinds of these middle ground episodes where they bring on people with diverse opinions to discuss a topic, whether it's like conservative trans people versus liberal trans people and what can they sit down and agree on flat earthers versus scientists you get the idea so i was really excited that they actually released this video because if you don't know already john delin the host of mormon stories my former boss he actually flew himself out with his own money a couple years ago to film a jubilee episode on ex-Mormons, this exact same video a couple years ago, but it was never released. And what he told me at the time was that they just didn't do a very good job casting the Mormon side. You have like John DeLynn and then I think just like some people from the singles ward that they selected from like the local LA area. And it just was like eh, not the right weight class of uh, people to have that discussion, first of all. And the Mormons were either too liberal or didn't know the history and the arguments as well. So this time around, they chose quite the cast. So I just came back from a watch party last night at one of the cast members' house, Jillian Orr. And so one thing that you will not see anywhere else is I have the best videos of us watching it with like 20 people at this giant watch party that I wanted to include in this podcast because you will not get the full effect until you hear a crowd of like 20 Xmos. But the Nuanto is here and will always be here. And I will always 
um, try to see things from other people's perspectives. I had a overall positive, you know, experience in the Mormon church. I didn't leave because I had a bad time. I left because it's for me, not a true thing. So I uh, want to be able to kind of steel man the opposing arguments and try to see where they're coming from. And then in addition to that, I am going to add in some clips of the reaction video uh, that Word Radio, Heart Analysis Show with Kwaku, what they had to say. To me, that's the whole thing. <laughs> it's like you can watch this Jubilee video, but then what do the Mormon cast members think of their arguments? like how they were edited and represented and what happened behind the scenes to them compared to the story of what I know happened behind the scenes when I've spoken to Liz and Jill and John. So this is going to be so, oh, I'm so excited for this episode. This is so important to me because it's not very often that there's a gigantic platform like Jubilee that has so many subscribers that's having these important debates and topics um, where it's a video that if, you know, you're on the pro-Mormon side, you can send it to somebody and be like, look at this, and they can at least hear the arguments and then vice versa on the ex-Mormon side. So I hope you appreciate all of the effort that I put into collecting all of this information, putting all of these clips together, a lot more clips and information that I think you'll find in any other place with multi-camera angles. So if you like this podcast, please subscribe to this channel and leave a comment so that I know that you watched it and said, good job. All right. So right here on screen, we have the thumbnail for the video that was up there yesterday. They have changed it now to a picture of Jill. I need to play the clip from Word Radio where Cardin and Kwaku broadcast from, uh, but they were upset about the thumbnail. They were upset about just about everything except for LGBTQ suicide. For that one, they were like, it is what it is. But the thumbnail, they had a lot to say on it. And Cardin really hates that he looks like the epitome of everything that the secular, woke, left, mob, anti-Mormons hate. Do you remember when I said, I know I was going to be on this thumbnail? Do you remember why I said I was going to be on the thumbnail even before it came out? I'm the token straight was, white I guy. I was the so only straight pro-LDS white man in that entire studio. They were hunting for that demographic. We are the token bad men of secular atheist society right now. The woke hates uniquely my demographic. Christian men. Dog whistle. But I did think it would be fun to do a little bit of a Mortal Kombat thing. John. John DeLynn. Strengths has been hosting Mormon Stories podcast for 19 years, holds a PhD in psychology, knows every argument backwards and forwards, weaknesses, is filled with disdain for two of the panelists because he had to endure years of hurtful remarks and slander by Kwaku and Cardin. Other weakness doesn't have me as a co-host anymore. As we go through this episode, we will talk about how I am not the co-host anymore. So as we go through this reaction video, it just wouldn't be complete if I didn't put in a lot more context about the type of guys that Kwaku and Cardin are. I had four people in my ward who were convinced by a follower of John DeLynn. There is uh, a person who will remain nameless that I know that is actually a family member of mine that adopted all of these exact same arguments against the church and then convinced four ladies in our ward to cheat on their husbands. And there's like now like 16 or 17 kids without mothers and parents rapid divorce by john delin that he is straight up home wrecking for profit you know what happens this is what makes me angry this is what pisses me off they have a faith crisis during their midlife crisis period when they're going to question everything because they go oh another half and i'm gonna croak and so they have a midlife crisis and then they think oh is everything in my religion not true and then they go 
to wolves in sheep's clothing who convince them that their marriage is, is, is a farce and they should leave their spouse and they should go experiment and gain back the youth they never had. And then suddenly they're mm, some guy on a boat and doing things they should not do. And you see how these these ex-Mormon therapist life coach people in Utah, I'll say anti-Mormon ones, not just anti-Mormons, they drive these families apart. They're really like gross, insane things that they have said about John DeLynn over the years. Basically, when they can't make any good arguments <laughs> for Mormonism, they just try to make arguments against ex-Mormons and you know, one of their leaders, John DeLynn. So while I did work for John and I still work with him at Mormon Stories sometimes, um, from the very beginning, I have never been like a total John sycophant or anything as well. So I can criticize John and see where his strengths are and his weaknesses are. But overall, John's a great guy and he brings a lot to this space. Next up, Liz. Strengths. Born and raised Mormon. Left in 2015. Actress. Class act. Compact argument communicator. Mm, love some of what she says here. Oh, love it so much. Best dressed. Weaknesses. I called her on the phone. We're new, we're new pals. We met last night. And her weaknesses only really come down to completely exhausted by the end and then shocked into silence sometimes. All right, next ex-Mormon on the team, we have Dylan. Strengths, he has the lived experience of marrying a woman, having kids in the church, and is now married to a man. Weaknesses, doesn't get a lot of airtime. Met him last night as well. And then we have Jillian. Strengths, born and raised Mormon, served a mission. Flashed a rainbow flag in her gown at BYU graduation. Been on multiple news shows after that happened. Excellent conveyor of arguments. And also Jill has been gay at my house. I just think that that's like a cool superpower to have that the other ex-Mormons do not have that advantage. That she's bringing like that token like lesbian energy that Jubilee was after. And Jubilee didn't even know that she has a superpower where she has been gay at Nuanso's house. So just an added bonus. Weaknesses, Jill has a job and that she isn't here making this video with me. So that's her only weakness. So that is our ex-Mormon side. And as for the Mormons, let's bring out Timber. Timber's strengths are that he left the gay lifestyle to marry a woman and have kids. He has a very orthodox view of the gospel. Weaknesses are that... He left the gay lifestyle to marry a woman and have kids and has a very orthodox view of the gospel. Next up on the Mormon side, we have Bella. Strengths are that she is a nuanced convert who has not yet been corrupted by groupthink, which is really cool about her contributions on this episode. And then there's a secret thing that I will say later that I am super excited to share. So if you want to know who won, Mormon or ex-Mormon on this let me tell you a story at the end. Weaknesses, none. She's perfect. And again, I ran this list by Liz and Jillian this morning, and they both said, no notes. It's true. She's perfect. Okay. Next, we have Kwaku. Kwaku L. Strengths has hosted a pro-Mormon podcast catering to douche bros for many years. Knows how to utilize every fallacious argument in favor of Mormonism. He is a Black convert. He makes the church look nuanced. and. Uh, has non-Mormon approved ear accessories and etc. I think it's disingenuous to propagate a religion and idea and him saying that there's just like, the, what you guys are talking about Mormonism, it's just like not reflected in my daily life because like I run like a party organization where like all the Mormons I'm with party all the time, but we're like still totally Mormon. And it's like, 
we're talking about the Mormonism as it is taught by the prophets, as it is taught by like what you have to get through in a temple recommend interview, like the one that actually like infers the most trauma onto people. We're not talking about your like cool Utah County party lifestyle of, of Mormonism where you get to wear earrings and do psychedelics. Oh no, I've said too much. And under weaknesses, I wrote, how much time do you have? <laughs> Kara Burrell. Kara, have me on your uh, 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 your your thing. <laughs> in the guest room? Have her in the guest room yes, that she yes. broadcasts no, from? Kara <laughs> Burrell, do it. I will sit down with three hours, any topic. And Cardin. Save the best for last. Strengths, similar to Quaco, they both host Ward Radio, formerly known as Midnight Mormons, formerly probably just like an abandoned studio, and that actually... Just nothing going on in the space where they record now was actually probably a better boom to Mormonism being true than when they started podcasting and talking about it. I think they actively um, do more harm by representing the douchiest versions of Mormonism available. But they have an audience and their audience enjoys that. Cardin, similar to Quaku, knows how to utilize every fallacious argument in favor of Mormonism. Also, as you'll find in this podcast, has a terminal illness he uses to advance his points. Great strength when your weaknesses become your strengths. Love that aspect of the gospel. Good application. Cardin, amazing. And finally, weaknesses again. How much time do you have? <laughs> and the first prompt is Mormonism is a cult. All right. So we got Jill sitting down. Well, I think some of the things that are important to all of the ex-Mormon side sat down. Pay attention to were like critical things in your life that you're told how you're supposed to do them, right? Like your sexuality, the way you dress, what you eat. What underwear you wear. Mm -hmm. What made me finally, because it was hard to admit. And it has a quote from the church's website, churchofjesuschrist.org, that says, Temple garments are worn by adult members of the church who have made sacred promises of fidelity to God's commandments. Made me finally, because it was hard to admit growing up Mormon, it was hard to admit that it was a cult. But I think when you look at, again, the critical thinking, the lack of it, um, I think is a big red flag. I feel like with Mormonism and growing up in that culture, which is there, that word right there, I had no issue stepping forward, but not necessarily to specifically focus on the negative connotation, but really just what the word is. Let's call it what it is. I'll just speak kind of from a psychological perspective, because that's my background. Uh, does the organization, uh, you know, withhold information from its members uh, with the intent of controlling the thoughts of the members? Does the organization manipulate uh, the members through emotion? And then do they have excessive controls of behavior? And while uh, it's deeply offensive to tell anyone they're a member of a cult, no one's going to ever say they're a member of a cult because no one thinks they're in a cult. We have the disagreeers step forward. Great points on everything so far. I think the only thing that I would add if I was sitting on this panel, because I would know what the Mormons are going to come in to say. They're going to want to downplay the cult word. They're going to do some type of like no true Scotsman type fallacy of like cults, like everything's a cult or nothing's a cult and um, try to minimize it as much. But I would want to set it up so that they had to give more concrete evidence and answers. I would ask, how do the leaders of the church talk about ex-members of your church. I mean, you can go back to Joseph Smith has quotes saying that when you joined this church, you stood on neutral ground 
uh, between good and evil. And when you chose to join this church, you chose to follow God. And if you ever leave this church, then you do so by the enticings of Satan. So by telling people that questioning the leaders of the church and leaving is doing so by the enticings of this satanic force, are people given a pathway to still leave with their dignity intact? Then not that they left for actual, like important factual reasons, but they did so by this like evil metaphysical boogeyman that we made up about them. So things like that. And then all of these different like thought stopping cliches. You can tell a lot about an organization by the type of phrases and tools that they use to keep members in the faith when they're doubting. Using kind of like an outsider's test for faith, where if you know that somebody else is trapped in a false religion and they're Jehovah's Witness or they're part of some type of other cult. So if you know that there are so many different phrases that people in false religions and what you might call a cult, Mormons, if you would look at them and they're using different phrases that keep them trapped in a false religion, how does that make you feel when those exact same phrases are utilized to keep the members of the Mormon church kept in and still believing? Things like, it's not important for your salvation, don't think about it anymore, or that's a mystery of God, which he uses to test our faith, or we will find out the answers to this troubling question in the afterlife. Until then, you must simply have faith. Or if God commands something, that it is therefore right. As opposed to what um, podcaster Jonathan Streeter has coined as steel tools, things like ask current and former members, gather as much information, official and unofficial sources, go with your own moral compass, and try to find out what is true no matter what it says. Is there anything like that within Mormonism? No, because it has the doctrine that this is the only true church with the only living prophet. There's one way to salvation, and it is through following these steps. And to keep you in line with those things with such a you know tumultuous history as Mormonism has, and so many things that do fall short, it's going to have those same type of those thought-stopping cliches that would keep anyone in a cult. So I guess my question for the Mormon panelists when they sat down would be, if we know that Mormonism utilizes these same types of thought-stopping cliches over and over again in things that we would all agree are also false religions, why? Why does Mormonism's epistemology, why does its structure look so similar to other things that are cults that we could agree on? Why is it so similar to other cults in those ways? And what does that say about God the Father? What does that say about this perfect, almighty, all-powerful, omniscient being who has all the ways in the world to teach his children about the gospel so that his epistemology, God's epistemology for his children to utilize is the same as false religions? And why should I worship that type of God? Even if I'm saying it's not a cult, why does it, why does God make it look so much like a cult? So I'm a convert to the church and and uh, born and raised in a partner family, uh, lived a gay lifestyle before I joined the church. And I, um, it's, it's a little um, disingenuous to me when people say that the church tried to hide stuff from me because I grew up in a, in a family that was very stereotypical. So it was just very strict. And I remember things being talked about like um, polygamy, like lots of sensitive church history topics growing up. And that's partially why when I distanced myself from Christianity generally to go live a gay lifestyle, um, I really had concerns. Drink every time he says gay lifestyle. Concerns with the church. But ultimately, knowing those things 
only strengthened my testimony when I came back to it. I completely left that lifestyle behind. And of course, I still have same-sex attraction. And But um, I am definitely happier now being married to a woman, having kids, um, than I was. So he's not really addressing if it's a cult or not. People can be plenty happy inside a cult. That's not really the thing. And so I don't know why he would say it's disingenuous for people to say that the church has hid things. I think he's, again, referencing what John just said, like, do they hide things from their members when John was listing different things? And then he's saying it's disingenuous to say that they hid things from their members. Um, I think that every single church historian you could ever talk to would say that they've hid things from their members. I'm doing a podcast series right now with Barbara Jones Brown. So that's just a really wild statement that I could make a five-hour podcast on um, to say that it is disingenuous to say that the church has hidden things from its members. Um, I mean, off the top of my head, Timber, did you grow up knowing that Joseph Smith was a polygamist? Because I'm guessing that most Mormons today in 2024 don't even know about Joseph Smith's polygamy and the extent to which he practiced it and the ways that in which that he practiced it. I have entire podcast that I did that has 500,000 views on YouTube right now with me and John DeLynn sitting my Mormon friend Eve down because she agreed to, you know, let us tell her the truth about Joseph Smith that she never knew growing up. Were you made aware of the fact that Joseph Smith had over 30 wives, some of them as young as 14? Like, you can't just say, like, I grew up knowing about polygamy. Like, you can know that we practice polygamy, but what Mormons always want to sidestep is what does that say about the character of Joseph Smith? That what does it mean for the prophet to practice polygamy in ways that like Patrick Mason, a, a church like historian, apologist, teacher, Patrick Mason has said that the way that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy looked a lot like sin. So what does that mean for Joseph Smith to be practicing polygamy in a way that has such devastating ramifications that people like Warren Jeffs, who sits and rots in prison right now, and other polygamous leaders who have caused so much um, trauma and devastation and murder and, and rape and all kinds of horrible things, when they were practicing uh, polygamy in with with their reference guide being Joseph Smith, what does it mean to believe in a God who sets up a system this way that just has oceans of trauma attached to it. It's not enough that we just say like, I knew that he practiced polygamy. It means like, what does that mean to the character of a prophet? What does that mean to a God that says about himself through his prophets that I'm to the same today, yesterday, and forever, when we know that that doctrine and things are going to be changing based on societal influences? So the ways that the temple has changed throughout time, you're telling me that when I went through the temple and I was told this sacred ordinance that has been around since Joseph Smith received it from God the Father, that that, that story is, that's what I was told when I went through the temple. This ordinance has never changed and will never change where they actually hid from me that the temple has completely changed over time. We used to do types of blood oaths in the temple until it was changed in 1990. Um, I was never told that it changed. I was told that it doesn't change. And so if the question is about it being a cult and you have the audacity to bring up that they've never hidden anything from you is exactly why it is a cult. It's because the reasons that things have changed within the church are not because of revelation, but because of outside pressure as any dogmatic authoritarian 
cult or structure does, that enough pressure from the outside in, enough societal pressure, enough bad PR, enough people complaining, not top-down revelation, but bottom-up outside in, is the reasons why the temple changed, is the reason why the church had to start putting out more gospel topics essays, is the reason why the church has to, you know, own up to the Mountain Meadows Massacre. It is only because of people resisting against its cult-like structure, not because the church itself is genuine in its approach to giving informed consent to people investigating the church or its members. Continue. With my boyfriends. When I think of a, a cult, I think of an organization that's really controlling and they don't let you exercise freedom or autonomy. They control what you, how you think, they control what you say and how you say it. But if I look at Mormon culture expansively, I don't see people that are controlled. I, don't, I, I feel like the word cult, I mean, if you, if, if you break it down to mean at some point someone suggested that I live my life a certain way, then everything's a cult. And if everything's a cult, then nothing's a cult. Somebody at some point, then everything's a cult. Give me the proposition, though, of what, give me the proposition of the church, though. Is it a proposition when you go as a missionary saying, hey, somebody somewhere wants you to live your life a certain way, get on board if you feel like it? Or is it that there is one true church restored by God through the prophet Joseph Smith? He taught this, this is his book, and this is the one path to live with your family forever, or else you would be separated from them if you do not follow this instruction from our prophets and teachers. The proposition of Mormonism is not what Quake was making it out here to be, and he wants to soften it a lot more. Because I think, truly, I think Quaku, I think a lot of things about Quaku. Um, I think truly, genuinely, he does not actually believe in the, like, the Mormon church is is big T true, that it was, yes, maybe restored through Joseph Smith, but then has got lost along the way. But I think he feels a real, like, I don't know, like an ego tie or an identity in being somebody who represents Mormonism now. And it's his version of Mormonism, but it is not like he believes the same type of Mormonism as like the average LDS member who has a certain level of orthodoxy in the tenets of the church that you do need to follow these things to keep the spirit with you always. You need to wear the garments. I mean, that's evidenced by the fact that he has two piercings in his ear right now that, um, that's totally not allowed in Mormonism. And, you know, he has to bring that up with his bishop that might be totally cool with it. And he can have a temple recommend, or maybe he doesn't want to go to the temple. Simply put, I don't think that Kwaku does his podcast and talks about Mormonism as much as he does because he believes to his core that it is true that Brigham Young, Joseph Smith, all of these guys were prophets and it is led by the mouthpiece of God, Russell M. Nelson in Salt Lake City today. I don't believe that that Kwaku believes that, honestly. Um, I just believe that the way that he operates is in a way where he knows that he has an audience that will listen to him talk about the things that are opposed to Mormonism. You know, the secular woke leftists, the John DeLins, the anti-Mormons. He knows that he will have a platform in talking about what is opposed to Mormonism without actually having to preach about what Mormonism does for his life, because I don't believe that he actually believes it and lives it, if that makes sense. Pro-Mormon podcasters who are all about, like, we love Jesus Christ, we love Jesus Christ, and the way that we show it is by showing what pieces of shit John DeLynn is, you know? But I think that these type of podcasters, they live their life in opposition to the church's teachings and in opposition to what Jesus Christ taught, but they have a platform that will pay them, and they have subscribers and douche bros that will listen to them based on 
not what they are preaching about Jesus Christ that is represented in the church, but they have a platform of people who will listen to them based on not them living that aspect of the gospel, but based on them talking about people who are opposed to anything to do with the gospel. That is what they're all about. There are many members of the church who have this mindset that when the prophet speaks, the debate is over and you should just not think about it. Where did they get that mindset from? That's not right. I honestly, I think that is cultish. Um, But that is not what the church has taught over time. I think, though, that you are told, seek your own answer, pray. But if it differs from what the prophet is saying, then you might be being deceived by Satan or you got the wrong answer. It should ultimately align with what the prophet is saying. And that's why they say, you know, read the Book of Mormon, pray, see if it's true for yourself. And if you don't get an answer, pray harder, go talk to someone, have more experiences, try again until you get the right answer that it's true. So I think it's a little disingenuous to say that you can seek truth on your own that doesn't align with the prophet because that doesn't generally just seem to be how it goes. Um, Well said, Liz. Absolutely no notes. Only thing is you can tell they're trying to be kind and like she's really holding back of like, it seems to me. And I think that's a little bit. So again, if I was on this panel, I would honestly just say like, so Timber, when Elder Oaks, one of possibly the next prophet of the church, when he just said recently in the last few years that when people are, you know, somebody's confronted with challenges in their faith or whatever, his answer was research is not the answer. So Timber, would you feel completely comfortable in saying what you just said to Elder Oaks? All right. And here's, here's, here's Cardin's clap back to that. And the number one message we do when we present the Book of Mormon and Mormonism at large to somebody is the infamous Moroni's promise. We say, go home, pray about it. You need to develop a relationship with God that is so unique and strong that you can recognize when he is talking to you, whether or not this is the path you're supposed to take. Cardin's referring to right here, Moroni's promise is found in the Book of Mormon, specifically in Moroni chapter 10, verses three through five. So this passage contains an invitation and a promise From the prophet Moroni to readers of the Book of Mormon, Moroni encourages readers to the Book of Mormon to ponder in their hearts the message it contains, then pray to God with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, knowing the truth of it. The promise is that if these steps are followed, God will manifest the truth of it unto them by the power of the Holy Ghost. So as Cardin is saying, a lot of times missionaries, they will say, hey, read this book, don't take our word for it, and you will have a spiritual witness that it is true. Now, for the people who love logical fallacies right off the bat, what are the bells that are going off for you? Read that book, and then already we're presupposing that you believe that prayer and manifestations of the Holy Ghost is a way to know truth. So that's fine. It's not begging the question. It's not circular reasoning at all. Just already assume that God will tell us the truth of this book because the book tells us that that's how we know it's true. So Cardin goes in hard here saying, we're not a cult. We don't just follow blind leadership. We just submit to our cognitive biases that tell us that 
any old thing that's happening here makes this book true, whether it's, you know, just appealing to your emotions that a warm feeling means that it's true. And that warm feeling doesn't mean something else. Like, you know, you feel really loved by the missionaries and you're glad that they're stopping by because you're lonely and you want to give up cigarettes. And this seems like a good way to do it. Um, continue Cardin. All right. That's, that's what he's coming back with. Is a pejorative trope that has drink every time Cardin says pejorative trope, by the way, you'll be wasted. It's been an anti-Mormon slur against the church for a long time. And I always ask by what rubric you mentioned the bite model before. And I've seen that you've interviewed, uh, Stephen Hassan on. It's Stephen Hassan, by the way. He's also been on the show on my podcast. Thanks, Steve, for dropping by. And then on screen, it says Stephen Hassan developed the bite model to describe cult specific methods to recruit and maintain control over people. B I T E stands for behavior, information, thought, and emotional control from freedomofmind.com. And the only real critiques I've seen of um, Stephen Hassan's work are from people within cults, unfortunately. In your show, and he's given a rubric. Well, that same author has called anybody that voted for Donald Trump a cult. So fun fact, when Cardin doesn't have an argument, he exaggerates something that's out there in the zeitgeist um, to use um, for his advantage. So Stephen, um, Stephen Hassan, I think you'd be hard pressed to find any any single sentence that he's ever said or written that says anyone who has ever voted for Donald Trump is a member of a cult. But grouping everything like that is really convenient for people like Cardin because then it's like, that means he's crazy. So I just had to pause again right now because this just highlights what we call intellectual dishonesty. As much as I dislike somebody's arguments, it does nothing to my argument if what I'm trying to win, I show that I don't even know how to like steel man and actually represent what they said. All I want to do is just discredit them and put them in the crazy kook category. And then I don't have to deal with them anymore. When people, these, if you actually cared, like I actually care about Mormons. I think I do care more about Mormons having a positive experience in the church than Cardin does. Like I mentioned before, I think him and Kwaku do this because it gives them a platform of douche bros who will pay them money to fight their enemies that make them feel unhappy thoughts about their cognitive dissonance. But I don't think they actually care about the experience of Mormons themselves within the church, because if you did, you would try to make Mormonism a healthier place to belong to. And you'd actually interact with the arguments of what people say um, about your organization that makes it unhealthy and traumatic for people at times. You would actually engage with those arguments instead of only um, trying to misrepresent and dismantle straw man. So that's what he does is a dishonest actor in this space. He wrote an entire book about the, the cult of Trump. And if you apply any of these bite model methodologies or any of these cult definitions, my show choir in high school was a cult. Apple is a cult. Wait until the next Star Wars movie comes out. It's a cult. That word is used in the same way with the same inefficacy and the inability to back it up unless you use people that unfortunately in your case were not actually being truly Mormon. Stephen Hassan would agree that Apple can uh, have some of the traits of a cult or the military or an educational institution or a corporation but he also has a harm continuum, a continuum of harm. And if you add up all the deaths of, of the People's Temple, Jim Jones, of, of you know, any of the cults you mentioned, it, it won't add up to the number of LGBT youth in the Mormon church. 
So it says here, a 2017 study found that 89% of Mormon-raised LGBTQ respondents likely met criteria for PTSD diagnosis related to their religious experience from the University of Georgia. 89% had symptoms of PTSD from being Mormon. Oh, but they love gay people and they're totally welcome here. Just they happen to have PTSD. We all have trials. (laughs) Okay. John's doing a great job of bringing up the harm continuum. So that's tough to argue with. A harm continuum and Cardin saying, well, they don't actually bring like evidence and facts. It's just a pejorative. It's just like this anti-Mormon trope. How many studies do we have to show you? Buddy that participated in it, when they asked me, they said, how well did you think it go? How, did, how well do you think it went? I said, it went well in there, but that's not what people are going to see. This has not been put through the meat grinder that is the editing process yet. Totally. I totally understand. But at the same time, there's like three solid things that are positive for the ex-Mormon team kind of subtly gave more credibility to the ex-Mormon view just by only giving a um, source for things that they said. Never posted a single statistic when I mentioned stats, but they posted every statistic that John DeLynn uh, pointed out, I noticed. But yeah, I wonder why they didn't publish your stuff. I actually asked Jill about this and she said it was something that he referenced about LGBT suicides not being as bad and it's only like some certain percentage number. And I'm sure that if it was a legit statistic, they would have like looked it up and said, okay, this past past muster. It's not that they're biased against you. It's that you have a bias that you have blinders on that you can't even see when your own statistics uh, don't live up to any kind of academic standards, which Arden says on his podcast all the time that he rejects academia and intellectuals already so that have killed themselves and so we can talk about just severity of you know children are cut off some children are homeless because their parents kick them out now i'll admit the mormon church does a lot of good for a lot of people but if you just add up the amount of harm i think that's that's when it goes from just a silly trope to a very serious conversation i i can't vouch and say that an organization as large as the lds church doesn't have any damage. Obviously, people can do damage. It's like saying the church is true, but not actually believing it with your your words. Because nobody's saying that any of these other institutions in this room are the one true church. That's what you're here to defend. You're here to defend that it's the one true church. So sell us on that proposition. Hope and my goal is we can get rid of it. We can get rid of that out of our church eventually. But that is not a unique Mormon problem. That is a problem that was given to us by the generations that came before, the generations that said separate water fountains, the generations that said, oh, you're gay, you should be going to camp, whether it's a Baptist, Mormons, whatever. That stuff. Again, Kwaku, he goes on to say that we should go easy on President Nelson because the dude is 99 years old and he was born before, like, I don't know, two of the queens and kings of England and so forth. Um, Does that not contradict, though, that like the generations that gave us like separate water fountains, the generations that gave us all these X, Y, and Z bigoted, racist, homophobic, sexist types of ideas um, that we should be able to get over. But the person who was born in that generation, I mean, like generations before even that generation, the per- he's still your prophet. He's still your mouthpiece of God. So he really um, is speaking out both sides of his mouth on what he wants. Oh, you're gay. You should be going to camp, whether it's a Baptist, Mormons, whatever. That stuff is evil. But does that evil 
make us uniquely evil or is that a Western American problem that has permeated these organizations? So if I was sitting in that panel, what I would say to Kwaku right there would be not a gotcha question, simple yes or no. I'm not asking if they were imperfect, but was the church restored through Joseph Smith? Yes or no? Yes, it was. Okay. The keys to speak on behalf of God, prophet, seer, and revelator through Joseph Smith. Do you believe that each additional prophet all the way up to Russell M. Nelson today each held those keys to be prophets, seers, and revelators, the only mouthpiece of God to speak on behalf of God the Father to instruct God's children on how to get back to him. Joseph Smith to Brigham Young to John Taylor to Wilford Woodruff, all the way up to Hinckley, Monson, Nelson today. I think if Quaker was allowed to be honest and he's not just trying to like say what he wants his Mormon audience to say, I think he would say that no, uh, Joseph Smith had something spiritual, and I think he would say that Brigham Young and so forth are absolutely not prophets. They just lead this institution, is what I think he would say. But if he was in that that panel and he said, yes, all of those people are prophets, seers, and revelators all the way up till today, I would just be curious to know that what makes Mormonism so unique that it can have people speak evil things about segregation, not giving Black people, the priesthood, or the right to enter the temple until 1978. What is it about the Mormon God where he has this unbroken chain of prophets speaking on behalf of himself who he allows to speak these evil things, and he doesn't have a better system in which to tell people that Black people skin is just a melanin thing, really. Um, It's really just like where they evolved. Because the question is, is Mormonism a cult? Why is God told to us, on one hand, that he is all-powerful and all-knowing, mighty, omniscient, all of that, on one hand, but he is not powerful enough to overcome the bigoted and racist milieu that he grows his church from that causes harm, trauma, and segregation for a vast majority of his children, making it impossible to use the institution, to use the church that he set up for them to know about their worth and the ordinances and covenants they need to make to return to him, the Almighty? Why is he so powerless that he cannot use better people that exist in every time period that Mormonism has existed? Why is he not powerful enough to overcome that bigotry, but actually benefits from it? Why, instead of curbing that in society, does Mormonism actually uh, incorporate it so much and withhold so many blessings for so long from, like, Black people in the temple, for example? Why is your God so powerless to help people return to him, is my question. Seems like a bad system. The Mormon community welcomes the LGBTQ community. I mean, you're welcome to pay tithing. So as a gay member of the church, I truly believe that I feel welcome. I feel at home in the church. I I realize some people have an issue with, obviously, we have the doctrine that sexual expression should only between, be, be between a married man and woman. But that same standard applies to everyone. And the scriptures are clear that male and female, black and white, bond and free, all are welcome to come into Christ. And that's the purpose of the church. The church agrees that 
no matter like what you are, who you are, and who you love, they're not going to shun you because of that. You might not get the same privileges necessarily, but that doesn't in the church. Wait, they but what do you mean about privileges? Like such as elaborate. like going to the temple, that kind of a privilege. So yeah, that but that also is the same for straight people. If if you're not living the law of chastity, and you're so that's where I love Bella. Bella's perfect because she says what is just true. She doesn't know that oh, you're supposed to shut up about what a uh, Cardin's trying to correct her on right now. Silly convert. This is the answer to say. Straight, you could the, have your temple recommended. It's as well. it's very personal, but the church doesn't. The church doesn't specifically when you're invited to church, they don't come up to you and ask you, "Are you straight?" They're very welcome. Yeah, are you yeah. straight? Are you lesbian? Are you gay? They they ask you about yourself. You don't have to fill out a form. No. Oh, see, when I walked I in, I had to fill out a form. No. See, this is kind of a a, a dumb little I don't know back and forth right here because of course the church is not going to do something like that. But Bella's point is that you're not going to get the same privileges. In the history of Mormonism, people who are born attracted to their same sex, they have often not enjoyed the privilege of being able to, let's say, like attend Brigham Young University without being told to get lost first day of the semester by the president, that we do not want your kind around here infecting all of our straight people. and. They haven't had the privilege at BYU of not going through electroshock conversion therapy, and they haven't enjoyed the privilege of not having Elder Oaks lie about their experiences that they had undergoing that. So you see where I'm going with this. Bella's right on. It's like, yeah, they won't enjoy the same privileges, which is the privilege to just basically, I don't know, be a human. <laughs> but but Temper's point is like, no, everybody has to obey the law of chastity, straight people and gay people. Uh-uh-uh, bring it on back. Don't stop, never give up. Bring it all back to you, S Club 7. Hold your horses. We're not talking about two people slamming together. We're not even talking about like sexual relations here. We're just talking about being able to feel comfortable that you're even attracted to who you're attracted to. You don't have the privilege of doing that in the church. You don't have the privilege of feeling okay that that is just part of who you are and not something that needs to be electroshocked out or, you know, prayed away. You don't have the privilege of being attracted to who you're born attracted to because they want to make the point of like, straight members and gay members can only have sex within the bounds of marriage. And even if you're gay married, still no. We're not even talking about that yet. We're just saying, do they have the privilege of showing affection to somebody of their same sex where they don't have that privilege? But Mormons have to be more intellectually honest than this to just admit that like, you, they don't get to enjoy the privilege of feeling like God, you know, made them as they're supposed to be. You as a straight person get that privilege. They don't have that privilege. <laughs> Can the disagreeers please step forward, please? The concept that straight people and gay people have it equally hard to enter the temple is a complete joke because straight people, yes, also have to deal with their trials and their faith and live the law of chastity, do X, Y, and Z, and yet they're not having to go against their instincts or their nature. It's all lined up for them. Like if we were to flip it and say that being gay is the norm in the church, let's just pretend for a second, and you were the straight one, 
and you wanted to go to the temple, and in order to go to the temple, you would have to swear to never sleep with women again, and you would only be able to sleep with men. That would feel very wrong to you. Yeah? No, I, I, I completely understand. We live in a hypersexualized society, and I think that is very, very difficult for gay, lesbian, transgender members of the church, and so on and so forth. And just as Timber said, the Lord in his infinite mercy does not spare any of us from trials. But this idea that, I don't want to say that their, their trial is unique because it is unique, but I, I look at it a little bit differently. I have leukemia. Cardin on his podcast and his response really likes to say that this was edited and taken out of context. And that's not what he meant. He was trying to say something else. Um, but I asked Liz and I asked Jillian today how it actually went down. And she's like, they're like, no, the he's they edited and they kept in every single sentence that he said. Um, they couldn't see anything that was off. So is this a case where Cardin presents an absolute slam dunk point, nothing to do with emotional manipulation, just an example from his personal life that completely helps him, you know, win this type of argument? Just as Timber said, the Lord in his infinite mercy does not spare any of us from trials. But this idea that I don't want to say that their their trial is unique because it is unique, but I, I look at it a little bit differently. I okay, so keep in mind, he just said I don't want to say that their child isn't unique, but it is unique. So he is saying gay, lesbian, transgender people, that they have a trial. That is their trial. But I, I look at it a little bit differently. I have leukemia. Has My leukemia. illness will kill me 20 years earlier than Timber. You don't think... You don't think on my deathbed, forgive me, you don't think that I wouldn't trade a little bit of Timber's gayness for 20 years extra on this earth? So if Timber has a loss of faith because being gay in a hypersexualized world with a law of chastity from the Bible that he doesn't understand, I get that. Because we live in a cruel, hypersexualized world. But I stare down the barrel of a chemotherapy pill every day that keeps me alive. I will die probably the same time my father does. Trial, and it sucks, but welcome to the club. That's why oh, I have to stop you right there. <laughs> the trial comes when the church tells you that that is wrong, and hopefully when you die, that cancer of being gay will be gone. Yeah, Jill! And then Jill absolutely brings it, and I will let her finish her point in a second. So don't let this be misconstrued. If, if I'm trying to, to steal Man Cardin's argument as best as I can, he's saying that we all go through trials that make us say, Scott even listening? Why would he do this to me? This is not something that I can overcome. And I think I'm just going to lose my faith and God's not really there anymore. And he's saying, we all have to do that. I think he's about to say, Christ said, you know, take up your cross. Like we all have burdens that we have to carry. I have leukemia. You, Timber, have gayness. Cardin went in there and he thought he did an amazing job, just like he does an amazing job on this podcast. So that's his standard. By what rubric? Because you're gay. Well, we all have faith crisis because of something, but they took out the clarification in the edit to make yeah. it sound like you were mm -hmm. saying, look, you're gay. I have cancer. They're the same thing. Yeah. And it's like, okay, no, no, he's not. He's not saying and, and it's so, like, it's exactly. not, he's not saying it's a disease. He's saying 
we all have different things. And, that can and create then a faith it crisis. doesn't make any sense when I say, no, I'm talking about the faith. You're calling it a trial nonetheless that would lead to a faith crisis. You're literally splitting hairs over something that is so obviously like a minefield that you should not even approach trying to walk into. Guys, just don't. Faith crisis. Like, it's not getting any if better. You're a, if you're a homosexual member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and you end up having a faith crisis because we live in a hypersexualized world and you may not understand the practical benefits of a uh, uh, of of an eternal marriage that follows the Adam and Eve archetype, right? And you have a law of chastity. What if people are just gay in every culture, whether it's hypersexualized or not? You ever consider that, Garden? that you do not understand okay that lack of understanding that lack of celestial vision shall you say can i can see why that would absolutely cause a faith crisis you're really again downplaying that people who have that celestial vision who go through conversion therapy who put themselves through hell who do everything the church says so that they can have that like celestial vision they can do everything right and they still can't get rid of their gayness because john delenn points out in this video the statistics are terrible for people in mixed orientation marriages and terrible for people who choose to like have to live celibate lives to stay within the church. It's ne neither of them are good options. And that begs the question, maybe this church is false and this is not a necessary standard that you're supposed to live by. There's no matter how there's a, it's not a matter of thinking celestial and just keeping your eye on the prize. He's just downplaying this so disgustingly Jill deserves to rip his head off. And if she didn't, then I will. I lived in Children's Hospital of Los Angeles for freaking almost all of 2017. You don't think I didn't see 50 million faith crises as, as parents saw their children slowly die of cancer as I got diagnosed with le leukemia, a disease. I don't understand why I got that, why God would do that to me, why somebody like I was simply trying to say, like, I'm empathetic to somebody losing their faith over something difficult that happened to them that they may not understand. And you need to choose. Are you either saying this was very, very difficult and we need to empathize with you? Or are you trying to say that like it wasn't and it was the best thing uh, ever? Or do you just want to lambast me? Because it looks like you just want to lambast me and twist my words into being something that it was not about. I was not trying to compare you to a cancer, you know? Cardin's like that trial for Timber is something that makes a lot of people have a faith crisis and lose their faith. God's answer is to overcome that burden, that that it should make you lose the faith. It should be something that you should stay in the faith, either as a celibate person or a mixed orientation marriage. That would be Cardin's answer to that if he was able to logically follow that that's to, the, to its conclusion. So don't have a faith crisis is Cardin's argument. We all have trials that we're all given. Don't have a faith crisis and leave because you're gay. Overcome it. And for me, my trial, it's not that I'm like a pompous douchebag. God actually likes that one. God likes me being a egotistical hypocrite who talks about this hypersexualized culture, completely ignoring uh, asexual people and people who are actually not that sexualized in this culture who just still are attracted to people of the same sex. God actually benefits from me being a pompous douche bro talking to the other people who maintain this douchey patriarchal system that benefits other people that look like me. God actually likes that. That's not the trial. That's the strength. He appreciates. That's all fine with God. Cardin's like the leukemia he gave me. At the same time my father does. It, it's a trial and it sucks, but welcome to the club. That's why oh, I have I to said, stop you right there. To say that being gay is a trial is disgusting. That is offensive. You don't that think is like dying saying, early is disgusting no, 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 to no. me?
where Timber's like trying to resist living the gay lifestyle, Cardin's like trying to resist the dying lifestyle. Like, you know what I'm saying? Wait, wait. I wouldn't trade a little bit of Timber's gayness. Let her finish. I am saying that the way that the church sees people being born gay is like being born with cancer. I think, yeah, I think she was more upset that you referred, you you basically to codified it as an illness. And no, I'm saying you have a loss no, 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 of no, no, no. because of it. Being gay is not a trial. Being gay in the church is a trial because of how they treat you and how they see it. How they see gay people is like being born with cancer. They're like, we're so sorry you were born this way. You can be that way, but don't do anything about it. If I being, I went to BYU. I took tests where they said, if I, they had asked questions like, how do we treat members of the LGBTQ community? And the answer was to love them unconditionally, but understand that they will never be truly as happy as those who follow the Mormon religion. And so that is so painful to read and see because the trial isn't being gay. Actually being gay is, incredible. Being attracted to someone of the same sex is beautiful. And I've never been happier. The trial comes when the church tells you that that is wrong. And hopefully when you die, that cancer of being gay will be gone. That's See, I, I, I don't. Because you were obviously very, being very vulnerable and sharing like. An very amazing. manipulative. And she just interjected like, oh, being gay isn't the worst thing that could happen. And then you weren't allowed to Especially when um, you started talking about um, like your experience with leukemia and that faith crisis that you had going on, and um, that girl, what was her name? She like interjected and was Jill. super argumentative and rude. Are you kidding me? Super argumentative and rude when Cardin he was off his rocker saying what he said. Jill was calm after. Jill was calm, concise, and beautiful and perfect for what she has lived through and then what she just heard. Mm, no, sorry. When you die, that cancer of being gay will be gone. That's see, the I, I don't, I see, I, I disagree. I think we all right on, have Jill. equal opportunity for happiness. I think happiness looks different for other people. And I can say that I had a semblance of happiness when I was with my boyfriends. And um, but are you saying I, she's not really happy? No, you're saying her happiness is fake? I'm not. I'm not. I believe that I believe you are truly happy. And Do you think I she'll need to change fundamentally who she is as a person when we're talking about the next? Just, I'm going to let them keep going on, but it is interesting to point out that, like, Temper, he's actually quite orthodox in the way that he approaches the gospel. And for what he just said, though, is actually out of accordance of what Jill's lived experiences and what is actually taught in the church. So he said that, yes, he believes Jill is really happy right now. Do you really believe that? Because is it, why is that not true for you? You believe she's really happy living outside of the gospel and living and having a girlfriend? Because the, the crux of the question is not that like, does she just believe that she's truly happy or like, do you actually accept on behalf of your God that he accepts that form of her happiness? Or is she destined to be damned for what actually makes her happy? That is what's confusing. That's what the crux of the LGBTQ issue is, is that if I was born this way by God and this is what makes me happy and it is not in alignment with the the doctrines and of the LDS church, are they wrong or am I wrong? 
And right now, Timber is saying, you're happy. You're fine as you are. But that's what's really interesting is them pushing him on this question. Life in order to get that happiness that you're looking that you're that you're bringing to the I table. believe the Christian doctrine that sexual expression should only be between a man and a woman. But that again, that's not an LDS doctrine. So will mom and your father keep her out of the social kingdom? If she continues to have gay relationships. Well, he's not I, mean, I, understand. I am saying that has yes to yes yes <laughs> If she continues to have lesbian relationships, if she continues to have gay relationships, he's not. Okay, so I thought this was really funny too. You notice how Cardin is like, but well, and then the moderator steps in, and it is such a bag of bullshit on uh, Word Radio. Their response to this is like, the moderator, oh my gosh, he like was always letting the ex-Mormons finish and cutting off the Mormons and stuff. And I've heard from everybody on the ex-Mormon cast that they specifically needed a moderator because of Cardin talking over everybody else and answering questions for other people as he's doing right here. Like he's not letting Temper answer because he's afraid of what Temper is going to say here because she's really, he's really, you know, being cornered into the spot of like, can you give an answer on what Heavenly Father is, is he in the forcer to repent? What, what's going to happen here? Like, what is your answer? And Cardin does not want this flop or something to happen. He's like, again, this ego thing where he's like, I have to be the one to answer it. So I think it's real bullshit that they were complaining that the moderator was being unfair. If she, she continues to have gay relationships. Well, he's not. Wait, I, I, asked him. I am saying that. Has That's a yes or no. That's a yes or no. Do I believe that Heavenly Father would keep her out of the social kingdom if she, if she continues not? to have lesbian relationships this classic through, adult, through her entire life and doesn't, I, and doesn't repent for them? I, yes, I believe yes. that. Yes, but... but he'll, keep her, he'll keep her out of heaven. Celestial no, kingdom. Celestial kingdom. No, celestial kingdom. Yes, we all have a standard that we need She to won't be able to live with her family forever, which is the Mormon promise. Spouse. No, but that's, that's because, that's because hold on, of the hold on, doctrine hold on. of eternal Hold on, hold on, hold on. I mean, I yes, I, I believe Jesus is clear in the scriptures that there is a certain way to uh, be able to return to the Father. And we have to be willing to sacrifice everything. He says, he says that we need to lay down our lives, deny ourselves to follow him in order to go to heaven. And whether you believe it's the celestial kingdom or heaven or whatever it is, there, there is a standard that we need to live by. Yeah, it's never a good look. It's never a good argument that when your church is founded in resistance to all other churches on earth being abominations and that you have the one true path to heaven. And then when pressed on that people like Jill who have lesbian relationships and don't repent for them, that in your Mormon paradigm, in your theology, she will not be with her family forever. She will not be able to live eternally with a spouse or live with her maker, with her heavenly father again, like a straight Mormon would. Uh, and your answer to that is a lot of other churches are just as bigoted like that. Like that's the standard you go by. You deny yourself and that is what God wants. I'm not interested in knowing if other churches that I don't believe in and you don't believe in 
believe in similar bigoted ideas. I want you to give me the proposition on why you, like Timber, you believe that that is a healthy principle. I, I want you to I want you to sell me on that, not just because that's what the scriptures say and that's what God says. If Jesus Christ says in the Bible that you believe in, that you should, you know, test out the word, act upon it, that all of these good fruits have come from it and it has blessed your life, sell me on how it has blessed your life, not just sell me on that this is what it says and so this is what you've done. Because I can show you statistics of how these type of mixed orientation marriages don't work and how the church, because they don't want to change their theology around eternal families, even though they do sometimes, they don't want to be cast out of this evangelical circle that they're in that you were saying is, yeah, we're we're just all part of like this other bigoted abomination thing. I can show you how that has led to plenty of suicide and plenty of marriages breaking up and not being able to live out the fruits of the gospel that you're saying you will get if you deny yourself. Because plenty of people have denied their their same-sex attraction and now they have carnage left behind them because they were trying to do that. So sell me on why it's a good idea. Sell me on exactly what the church propagates that it is, that if you follow the tenets of this gospel, you will see and be blessed by the fruits of it, because I can show you nothing but the opposite of people who have tried to live by these tenets in Mormonism. The right. church, though, we, we definitely can talk about the issues with the LDS church. There's two ways to be accepted in the Mormon church. If you're gay, you either can be celibate or you can enter into a mixed orientation marriage. And I can tell you that uh, there's like a 70% divorce rate for mixed orientation marriages. That's Let me just true. finish. Let me just, it is true. Is uh, true. So I have a PhD in clinical and counseling psychology. I interviewed 1,612 LGBT Mormons and ex-Mormons. And this is based on my published research data. On the screen, it says the divorce rate for mixed orientation marriages was 51% at the time of survey completion with projections suggesting an eventual divorce rate of 69% Journal of Gay and Lesbian Mental Health 2014. And I may be taking a little bit of a risk here, but I'm telling you, I think it's really fun to add in some clips from the watch party I was at last night, just so you can just feel what it's like to be in a big group of ex-Mormons. If you're watching this alone at home, now you're not watching it alone. There's like a 70% divorce rate for mixed orientation marriages. So Let me just finish. Let me just, it is true. true. I, so I have a PhD in clinical testing. <laughs> And this is based on my published research data. Let me just finish. So you have one choice, which is to be in a mixed orientation marriage, where 70% are going to fail, and you're going to be likely miserable. Or you can be celibate, and believe it or not, being celibate has worse depression, anxiety, and mental health outcomes as someone who's in a mixed orientation marriage. And that's why so many LGBTQ Mormons choose death. And if you want personal, I'll give you personal. I am married to a man who used to be married to a woman, an amazing, amazing woman who God definitely had me find because of the situation that I had. I was able to have two biological children with this woman. And there is no way I believe in a God that is going to take away my husband and my two biological children that he absolutely I think statistics are very important, but I'm very curious. Would you say you're happier now than before? Yes, because my joy, the joy that I feel in Christ, future of LGBT relations and the church, I'm excited to see what happens because clearly something's going to have to happen. There's something's going to have to change because these are two groups that are not leaving. Yeah, I think that's 
obvious and a, a good point. That's a point I would also make. Like the Mormon church isn't going anywhere. Uh, people in the LGBTQ plus community are not going anywhere. So a change is going to happen. And if you read fantastic book, American Zion by Benjamin Park, you will see from a historical perspective how the church has called certain things doctrine over time. That's not like the intention of the book. Ben Park is just given an overview of Mormon history from start to now. But you will see how the church has changed over time with societal pressure from the you know ban on Black people being in the church. And now the big deal is, what's the church going to do about LGBTQ relations and how the church has often always sided with the evangelical right for more of a strong, unified front? Men are equal in the church. Agreeers, please step forward. This is a, one of the most glorious doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Is th There's no other church or religion on the earth teaches that men and women eventually can become uh, gods, co-creators. With their sister wives. Important asterisks. And, uh, and uh, co-equal partners. I mean, we, How do you be a co-equal partner with like, I don't know, Joseph Smith and his other 30 wives? How do you be co-equal partners? We don't get a lot of follow-up answers to questions on things like that. Eternal polygamy is still very much with us. Carolyn Pearson wrote a fantastic book on it. Oh no, Sister Kara, dead husband. I would have married you, but you're already sealed to your first dead husband. That's where that name comes from. Now I want nothing to do with you. Good luck. Every woman I want to marry will be sealed to me because I'm a man. I could just go through 10 wives in the modern LDS church. You can be sealed to as many wives of yours that you divorce or <laughs> have killed. So the point being here is tell me how we are co-equal partners. I'm just saying that if Joseph Smith and the subsequent prophets weren't, their wives weren't even co-equal partners with them on earth, what promise do we have that they're going to be co-equal partners with them when they share like 30 to 100 sister wives with them in heaven? Let's just get realistic. We do believe currently that, that we are co-equal partners already, just different responsibilities, but we both have the same ability to become kings and queens, priests and priestesses. And that's the ultimate goal. I wholeheartedly believe that men and women in the church are equal, but I, I think it's important to define what equal is because I'm immediately aware of what the secular anti-Mormon arguments are. At the same time, I look at our faith and we're a faith that has codified this Take a drink. idea, as the Apostle Paul said, that we will be co-participants in his glory. And we have a relief society, which is the largest women's organization in the world. We're one of the only faiths that's mainstream or large enough to have national recognition that I know of that has a and it says on screen, organized in 1842, the Relief Society is the women's organization of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with over 7 million members, churchofjesuschrist.org. They love to say, what about the largest women's organization in the world? Asterix, look at bottom of page, that is presided over by a group of men with unquestionable authority. But <laughs> you have to scroll all the way down to actually get the truth. This is funner for our argument. The doctrine of heavenly mother that is actually sung about in our official hymn book. What page? What's the name of the song? Uh, you look at women, they don't need to receive the priesthood in order to go to the temple. They, um, 
we're told our priesthood as men that we hold is useless unless it's applied through long suffering and patience. And we're caught. Do people actually act like that? Do they actually act like their priesthood is useless if they don't apply a standard that is basically exists whatever is in your mind of whatever long suffering and patience means? Because he's trying to play this definition game where he's like, equal. Well, it's equal if you apply my definition. What if we use the definition of like people who go to your church? What if we use the definition of what equal means as women voice it within the church? That's what's the most ironic thing about this is that Cardin doesn't give a shit about women in the church who say it's not equal because doing so places them out of alignment with the prophets who say that it is equal. So all he's doing is agreeing with a prophet who is a man who that's always been a man. This is the lip service that Mormons uh, like Cardin do continuously on his platform, the lip service of what this organization does for women after this and and that we don't have this priesthood until it's this long suffering. During the Tim Ballard whole debacle, the first time that that came out, I watched it very carefully. And he's like, these women that are accusing Tim Ballard of all of the sexual assault, they're all probably liars. I can't believe they did this, but I love women. And I, you know, if they come forward and they meet this criteria of showing their names, their faces and the evidence and stuff, all my listeners all rally around and support these women to take out people like Tim Ballard. And then I have continuously made videos pointing out that clip and asking if Tim Ballard actually did do the things that he is alleged were alleged months ago to happen. I have pointed out that clip of Cardin saying that him and his whole platform and all of his bros will all stand by these women that are accusing Tim Ballard of doing these things if they meet Cardin's criteria of evidence, which has absolutely been met by now. He has not once done anything that he said he would do. It is all lip service that if you meet this criteria, whether it's following the commandments in this way, I think is good or filling this gender role or meeting this level of evidence and criteria at every measure, women will do that. And people like Cardin will still put their fingers in their ears, such fragile egos and how they build their worldview and what it is based on. And Cardin obviously wants to think of himself as a good person, but not only does he lack, you know, uh, um, an intellectual honesty in his arguments to actually like steel man somebody else's position instead of just misconstruing them for his argument. So not only does he lack in, uh, intellectual honesty, he also um, lacks doing the hard work that he expects so many other people to do because it's actually hard work to have integrity. It's and Cardin's entire worldview is based around a lie that he can say one thing feel another thing and do another thing and still be able to, I don't know, propagate that he is a good person and that this is a true church when none of those three things are in alignment. He doesn't do the hard work that it takes to actually have integrity. He wants to just tell you and do the lip service of what a man with integrity would look like. But at every single thing, I use the Tim Ballard example um, as a big one because that is caused extreme amounts of damage and harassment in these women's lives. And Cardin has a responsibility then to walk back the statements that he said as forcefully as he put them into place on his podcast about these Tim Ballard and the women who have accused him and have a lot of evidence to back up the claims of the abuse that they suffered under Tim Ballard. So he wants to have a platform to oppose what he just said, like the secular leftist. And you will always find an audience of people who are reactionary who want to hear you talk about stuff like that. But there's not a whole audience of people who want to see you have integrity and want to have integrity themselves. And that is how you know that the church, this is, this is who represents the Mormon church right now. Say less, Kara, say less.
constantly told that you are living the Adam and Eve archetype. And unless you make a decision mutually with your wife, which is the ultimate definition of equality, it's uh, what we call unrighteous dominion. Um, I'm very aware that some people say, oh, because women can't have the priesthood that you're a second-class citizen. Well, and there's some cultural arguments that people might try and bring in, but in the codified faith, women in Take a drink. enjoy, sometimes will complain about almost preferential treatment. Does anyone know who the Relief Society president is? Yeah, Liz. Can you name the woman that is the Relief Society president over the whole church? I, I, I know it was Jean B. Bingham. I don't know who it is right now. I'll be honest with you. I definitely think that men and women are treated very differently. With that said, I can't name Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I, I can't. Again, Cardin interrupting. He just said he can't name the 12 apostles. Bullshit. That is so intellectually dishonest. You can't at least name half of them. And yeah, and then on their podcast, they also say that they're like, you expect me to know the Relief Society general president when she's at like the level of the presiding bishop? And you just gave away the entire thing. Yeah, you put your hands down to say like first presidency, 12 apostles, presiding bishopric, and then under here would be like the 70. You you purposely put your hands here for a reason. <laughs> like, you know that her power is nowhere near the influence as the people up there. It's a dead giveaway. Can't name the 12 apostles. So and yet I, you could name probably the first three, President Nelson and his counselors. I, I could name the prophet, yes. But at any given time, I confess. Let's, let's I, say on track. I run an entire LDS podcast, and I guess I could name, like, the prophet if I had to. That is how intellectually dishonesty is. When all she's trying to say is, you just said women are equal. To your point, Cardin, you just use as a point for your argument that they have the largest women organization in the entire world presided over by a man and what is it what do they do what's her name do you know anything about it <laughs> no you just use it to prop up your argument i do not think men and women are treated equally and it goes beyond the priesthood it also goes to your duties as a woman i think a lot of the time women are told i mean a lot of women go to byu or college just to find a spouse oh, and they're told not to continue their education once they get married and to let the man take over and be the main breadwinner so i i think that there's a lot of there is a difference between the duties of men and women See, in the I, sorry yeah. i think i think that's just a a general critique of judeo-christian uh, traditional household uh, st standards, I guess, or customs. I do believe women have been marginalized and um, men have asserted their authority and power over them in unrighteous ways and unrighteous dominion, right? Uh, but I think that has definitely changed, especially like um, not to get into the specifics of the temple, but the temple used to say that that women are basically subject to their husbands and have access to God through their husband. And they would veil their faces as well. That's not there anymore. And I think that is, that is a positive step that the church is coming to acknowledge that, hey, if Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother are co-creators, co-gods, she's not subject to Heavenly Father. I in Judaism, say, sorry, in Judaism, really quickly, women can be rabbis. And I, I don't know if within the next depending decade, on the, depending on the, sex. sure, I can't see women being bishops. 
personally, when I go to my church, when I'm in my ward, when I come to church, I sit down, everybody leading the church is a male and the only female you'll see on the stand, she is playing the organ. Mm -hmm. And when she's not playing the organ, she comes back down and she'll sit with her family. Is that why you, I wanna know why you chose to stay back? Cause I thought that was very significant. Uh, because I, I agree, I, I don't believe they're equal. Like just, just like what I said, she's she goes up, she plays organ, she comes back down and all you're left with is men until other women come up later on to bear their testimony or sing something. So it seems like both sides can't agree that, you know, the, the, the debate is on whether it's unequal or not, but they do have different roles and responsibilities. I, uh, in that instance, yeah, I, I think that, that, I would like to speak on that. Did that impact whether you left or not? I, I think it did impact my my involvement in the church in general because what I love the way that you're explaining is like a kid, a kid can sit in church and see who is in charge. Mm. A, a child can. Uh, even being raised, you know, becoming a teenager, you were only involved with the women. Even be like all of these levels, all the way up to a level of an adult of being married of, you can only practice your sexuality once you're married to a man. Only can you have sexual relationships once you're married to a man. Like it's very clear that we as women are seen very differently. And not only that, but even the concept of, of a heavenly mother that we talk about, they just told us to, that we're not allowed to pray even to a heavenly mother. We're not even allowed to, it's not brought up. We don't talk about it. And that just so clearly displays the difference of we only speak to God the Father. We don't speak to God Mother. We don't talk about her. And what's funny is it's all of the white men who are telling us why. It's always the white men who are telling well, us I'm, where our level is. It's I, the white men who are saying, oh, no, you have equal priesthood, but you can't sit on the stand. You can't pass the sacrament. You can't bless people. can't baptize people. I'm what sorry, but I, that that was that is a Judeo multiracial it's a biblical teaching that wasn't just instituted by white men that you may disagree with it and that's fine okay well we're talking about the mormon church right now and it is mostly you know white men right now um nothing against people being born white and men but we are talking about a system in which hey you're like me and i'm like you you're going to respect my interests i'll respect yours promoted systemic thing make the argument to me timber on Whatever the perceived inequity is that we have right now in Mormonism is for our benefit. That women thrive better without input in top priesthood leadership. Make the argument that men making decisions on behalf of where all of the money in the church is being spent. Make the argument that bishops do the best job at bishoping and leading a ward when they are only men. Tell me why the Heavenly Father that you believe in and you have a special connection in and you have so much joy in Jesus Christ, tell me why that God has revealed to you the answer to this. I do not need to know what milieu this came from. Sexist nonetheless. You may disagree with it, but the the fact of the matter is, is that there always is someone who presides, okay? And the scriptures say that the one who presides in the household is the man, but presiding doesn't mean is higher than okay one sec just a quick fact check siri define preside be in the position of authority in a meeting or other gathering that's enough do you want to hear the remedial hold is the man but presiding doesn't mean is higher than okay or uh, the definition of preside is to be in a position of authority one second what's the definition of authority the power or right to give orders make decisions and enforce obedience so according to Tember's point, men just have the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience? 
But that doesn't mean they have like power over women. These are your authority leaders. Come and get them. This is their logic. Has more power over. It means he just has, the husband has to ensure that the needs of the household are taken care of spiritually and temporally. And he works with his wife to do that. But it doesn't mean he has more power over her. But going, oh. I'm actually curious to hear his thoughts. This this little conversation right here is a microcosm of my Mormon experience, which is it's men having the power, men dominating the conversation, and then telling women why they're more important while they're mostly silent. When you were speaking about Heavenly Mother, when I first was speaking with the missionaries and learning more about the church, um, obviously you're always talking about Jesus Christ and the Heavenly Father and all the Holy Ghost and all these things. And I don't know where, but I I was thinking about it. I came across it. I was like, well, I want to learn more about Heavenly Mother. And it was probably a one and a half minute conversation because, oh, we don't know anything about Heavenly Mother. I was like, well, why do we know all these things? And we don't know anything about Heavenly Mother. I was like, she should be equally important. I mean, she births the person we worship. So I just, it was, I couldn't fathom how we knew little to nothing about it's Heaven not even that we speak less of her. It's we don't speak we don't speak of her. Yes, yeah. not allowed to. We're not even allowed to pray to her. Well, I I would well just because you're not allowed to pray to something other than, and by the way, not allowed. I I think that's a misrepresentation too. You you have free agency. You can do whatever you want, but just because we don't have codified prayer to somebody other than our Father in Heaven. Take a drink. Heaven doesn't mean that we hate. Like, but the prophet told us saint. Not to. Yeah. Okay. Well, well Jesus. I actually got a question for you. I got a question for you girls. Um, the division. Oh, okay. So this, this always atrophies into a priesthood argument. Um, but do you think it's possible to have equality with a division of labor or would equality be achieved in your mind with women receiving the priesthood? And then I have a follow up. This just came to my mind. This isn't a gotcha, but what would satisfy your definition of equality? Fun fact about the nuance, however, here before I left the church, I was very conservative and I ran a anti-feminist Twitter page. So. I know all these arguments back and forth. And one of the most interesting days on Twitter for me was asking this question. So one, I don't believe that this just came to me. I asked this exact same question on Twitter in 2019 and it exploded Mormon X Mormon Twitter for the day. I'll tell you that much. People were grabbing the popcorn. So we'll see what the ladies have to say. Must the women be given a priesthood and that's the, the hill we're dying on here? Or is there any other definition would satisfy? You know how to satisfy women the first time he's ever <laughs> They're leading the congregation for at least half of the. Well, well it's time. defined leading. Like what? Having an important job other than. I think the, the women are only teachings. allowed to be leaders of the women, whereas the men can be leaders of both men Le- and women. Lead above all. the church. So if, if women could have higher up roles where they are given more responsibility and more people in the congregation to care for and look after and given more positions of power. Is it something equivalent to yeah. the priesthood? Maybe okay. not the priesthood, but at least equivalent. So then then what would you call, like, for example, Sister Espanaus? I can't name the heads of Relief Society, but the young women I can because I'm a little bit more uh, uh, aware of it because I have children that are youth. But Sister Espanaus, Emily Bell Freeman, all of these women um, uh, that 
that have wildly powerful positions within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I mean, Emily Bell Friedman is probably one of the single most powerful Mormons in the world. I would say if she put something out on Instagram, it would probably have almost as much pull as Russell M. Nelson in the Pacific Northwest. Do Instagram posts by women in the church, to use your word, Cardin, do what they say, is it codified somehow within the church? In this side of the Rockies. No, so um, if... If we were to give just women the priesthood magically all of a sudden right now, it seems like these arguments kind of come from a politically secular leftist uh, stance of like represent. Take a drink every time he says secular leftists, because that's all he's doing is dog whistling. Ooh, ooh. Anyone who likes driving in a jacked up truck would know that. These arguments kind of come from a politically secular leftist uh, stance of like representation, which I get. I understand movies are cooler when you see somebody that looks like you in it. I get that. But then would you want to preach from a Bible that's all <laughs> If I was there, I would love to be able to stop him as a panelist to be like, okay, one second. All right. So we know that that works on your podcast, like the dog whistle of like, you know how those like academic secular left progressive beanie hat wearing hipsters in Williamsburg. I'm literally quoting verbatim of how he talks about people on his podcast. He gets into that kind of detail, picking up their overpriced lattes, eating kale. Like he wants people in his audience to like, even if my arguments don't stand up, I'm, I'm swear, I'm letting you in on a little secret because I used to be like an anti-feminist, anti-everything. They know that when their arguments don't stand up, all they need to do is just like dog whistle to a base. If there's some listeners out there who want to come over to Ward Radio, w -w -w Ward Radio, where my wife has a nice ass and I make sure to let everybody know. But then would you want to preach from a Bible that's almost written wholly and completely by men? At that point, would the demands of equality require that we have equal representation in the books? There's only one book of Esther. Now we'll take one book out of the Septuagint and ignore the Book of Mormon because there's not a single one that's written by a, a, a woman. Like, I don't see, unless we accept the dichotomy that there can be equality with a division of labor, I don't see where it ends even after giving women the priesthood. And this is, this is an honest question. I think it's even taking a bigger step back from even just having a position of power. But like, first of all, yes, I do think that women should be in, be able to be a position of power. It is the whole... So Cardin's argument basically goes, secular, woke, leftist liberals who hate God and hate America and hate families, they want us to get rid of everything that makes me and my friends me, including and not limited to the Bible. You hear this, boys? They'll never be satisfied. I have a book for you, broads. It's called If You Give a Mouse a Cookie then he'll ask for a glass of milk, all right? I ain't giving you ladies shit about the equality that you so desperately are trying to strive after because you won't tell me how it ends. And I have a feeling it ends with you taking away everything that makes me uniquely me. And as everyone can tell, I'm awesome. Well, you secular people are ridiculous. You want me to give up my very precious book, about God, the most unpopular villain in all of history, creating way more catastrophe than Satan ever could in the pages that have inflicted horrible amounts of trauma that definitely needs a revision. You want me to give that up and be secular like you? Not today, sister. We're secular because we gave that up. And I think society would be a lot better if you at least held more loosely to it.
doctrine of the church that how of how women are seen and how they were treated. It's bigger than just a position. It's how they are treated. It's like these are their responsibilities. This is the woman's responsibility in the doctrine of the family proclamation. It says very clearly what a woman's job is and mm-hmm. what a man's job is. And guess who wrote that? Bunch of white men. Did any of the women get to write that or present it? No, the men did. Do- so quick background on this, what Jill is referencing is the 1995 uh, Women's General Conference meeting in which I can link a video down below where I describe this more in thorough depth. But what she's saying is the proclamation to the family, which came out in 1995, was only released at that time and in that place, not at General Conference, but at the women's meeting of the Relief Society, because at that time, the LDS Church was going through this long time battle over same-sex marriage and it being shot down in the different courts and them trying to present different amicus briefs, uh, especially in the state of Hawaii, of saying that you cannot allow same-sex marriage because it is a total infringement on our religious rights. And then the court saying, like, um, you got to prove it, dude. And so them going back and forth and trying to put out all these different, like, minier proclamations of, like, we believe in the family in all these different ways. See, and the court's going like, um, no. And they're like, okay, what if we make a big splash? Like, we need something codified, <laughs> like Garden likes to say. So in 1995, the Relief Society General Presidency was all putting together their meeting that they had worked on for, you know, up to a year of what they were going to present on, which ironically enough was on the topic of diversity, of diversity of families are all welcome inside the LDS Church irony of the century. Two weeks before the women's general conference meeting for the church, the prophet at the time, President Hinckley, goes to the like uh, Relief Society presidents of the church and says, hi girls. So all those men in back in the scenes have been working on this thing called the proclamation to the family. It's going to be a really big deal. People will be putting it up on their walls henceforth and forever. And we really need to release this like right now because we want to let the entire world know that they can't pass same-sex marriage because we believe so strongly in like gender roles and like the eternal like divine roles of the family. So we want to present this at your meeting. Lucky you. So if you could scrap your entire meeting about diversity and so we could present this and like the two ideas won't clash. Thanks so much, baby cakes. And there are interviews and some kind of like secret interviews as well of the presidency at the time saying like, and also, huh, because this is a proclamation on the family about the family and you guys, you guys really there in the general, the the entire, all you apostles, you guys are always working on this and you wrote this entire proclamation on the family, right? And you didn't, you did not ask any of us in the Relief Society presidency, any women, were any women asked to uh, help you guys write this, this thing, this proclamation of the family. You let us go on our merry way pro- doing our program we've been working on for a year about diversity, all while you guys are praying to God the Father, writing down all this stuff. Nobody once thought to knock on our door and say, would you guys like to chime in on the role of the family, which I'm pretty sure includes women. <laughs> it's the quote from one of the uh, really Society presidents. It was directly exactly what I just said. I'm not even making up a single part. Women are part of the family. So good job, Jill, for bringing that up. I love to add context. Do, a, do women get to even be a prophet? No, there's never been a woman prophet. And so we always have these assumptions, but it really is how women are treated in general and how they are seen of their position in the church as a whole, not just by, okay, you can be over all the women. Congrats, you have a big Instagram. It's bigger than that. It's okay for the doctrine to change.
there's scriptural precedent for it changing. And one of the most beautiful aspects of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the fact that we have and rely upon modern prophets and we take what they say seriously and look forward to that prophetic revelation. But at the end of the day, um, we still have to go home and get that same revelation. We have to get that same answer from God directly from him that dovetails with that revelation so that we know in our core that um, that is what God wants for his Epistemology. Because what I would love to ask Cardin here is what he's describing is that you must get personal revelation that then will, you know, enshrine the truth of the doctrine that is being preached by the number one talker to God guy. But what he is completely ignoring is that you're already talking about a structure that People are already highly conditioned, whether physically with, you know, their families being taken away from them. Mentally, they're thinking about their salvation. They're already in a place where they are emotionally set up to already want to agree with the number one talker to God, guys. They are not conditioned to disagree with them because as we've talked about already in our cult section, that within Mormonism, your disagreement with the talker to God, guys, does not get you any kind of advancement. You are in the wrong and they are in the right. Even though throughout history, we know that there are people within the church who opposed what we now call false false doctrine, and they were in the right and the prophets were in the wrong. So what Cardin's talking about here, what I would love to ask him is you're describing this type of epistemology. You're describing this type of dovetailing that you get revelation to then have this doctrine that they're preaching that you know that it's true. But if we can look all throughout history, including like the Adam God doctrine, okay, that's not being preached anymore, where there were plenty of times where Brigham Young preached this doctrine that Adam and Elohim, God the Father, are one. And the entire congregations of Mormons prayed about it, pondered on it, and said, yes, this is a true doctrine. And I can repeat that type of same story 20 different ways in Mormonism. So if what you're talking about is a system in which people are only given a way to agree with the talker to God guys, but they're not given a way to disagree with them. And the vehicle in which that you just described, Cardin, is the same vehicle, the same epistemology that has led faithful members to believe in false doctrine. So if you know that, and you can say, that was then, this is now, what do you have to say about a better mode of, I like the uh, the vehicle. What do you have to say about a better mode of transportation to get one to true doctrine, to get one to doctrines that will not have to be disavowed in a couple of years? The mode that you just described, Cardin, is the same exact mode of operation that led people to believe plenty of false and harmful doctrines. Why are you still using that mode that leads people into false faiths, that leads people to believe false doctrines? Is it because, oh, that's just the Judeo-Christian practice? Is it just because this is like the Judeo-Christian Tradition to have that epistemology? Well, maybe then it's actually just a tradition. It's just the milieu. It's everything that you're describing. It's just the thing that we are around and grown out of. But I don't see you making the case that this is a good epistemology. I don't see you making the case that a loving God the Father who wants us to return to him says, I'm all powerful, almighty, I can do anything, and I still want the way that I tell you how to return to me to be completely indistinguishable from other fraudulent religions and other fraudulent doctrines. Make the case to me why I should worship that God. Children, uh, we don't have a static God. I just, I disagree there because God is unchangeable, hmm. as it states in the scriptures. The, the, there are eternal principles that are eternal. They, they never change. 
but how those principles are applied can change over time. But the, the eternal principles remain the same, period. If we don't have any object objective, solid, eternal truth, then everything is relative and relativity leads to chaos. We're talking about understanding God and eternal principles. I mean, we're, we're talking about cosmic law, multi-dimensions, everything so expansive and all that information, part of it is being channeled through the mind of fallible people who are writing things down in a fallible language being interpreted to people with fallible understanding. Yeah, that would all be fine if they didn't say, this is the truth, period, exclamation point, no more appendages, do not add to this, final, done, polygamy, law of heaven. If it ever gets taken from the earth, you will know the church is in apostasy. Stamped Brigham Young, number one prophet, talker to God guy. Yeah, if they didn't speak with such authority on so many subjects that have caused so much harm, sure, be like, that old God, you know how sometimes you're just like translating ancient records from a formed Egyptian and you just write down how polygamy is an abomination and God says, do not practice it. And then after you're found to have been sleeping with your uh, adopted teenage daughter in the barn that you suddenly need to amend that and they have the prophet in the modern day write down something and he's like i don't know i guess it says no polygamy that's an abomination from god and it's the most true and correct book of all time i guess but if i do get found having sex with my teenage adopted daughter in the barn i it's i only like finitely got the message about no polygamy god but now that i got like a better signal joseph smith's like not an abomination marry 14 year olds like reading you god loud and clear finally got that one right is that we're talking about Quigu? so it's useful that we have prophets on this earth to this day because everything is ever changing i mean look at our language and look at the way it used to be look how it is now it's just Everybody needs an updated interpretation. One of my favorite things about the Mormon Church is how much has changed. And I can think about three issues that really troubled me when I was an Orthodox devout member. One was when I went through the temple for the first time and I had to slip my throat um, as part of, uh, use my, hand, my thumb as a sign to slip my throat as part of a covenant I was making in the temple. I was super glad when I found out they took that out in 1990. So you guys can all see what John's doing here, right? With all of the Mormons, he's the only ex-Mormon that goes and sits down. John is strategic and he knows that he can say it's okay for doctrine to change because here's an example of something horrible within the church that I'm glad changed. And here's an example and here's an example. So I was dying of laughter when Jill was telling me this story in my kitchen a couple of weeks ago. John's smart. He's like, he gets extra airtime if he takes a moment to go sit down with the Mormons and make sure that everybody with the cameras and the mics gets to hear how fucked up these different Mormon rituals were and how grateful we truly are that they have changed. And without John sitting there, what he's saying would not have been announced to the world of Jubilee's audience that is really important for people to know is the history of Mormonism and its doctrine. The second was, I'm old enough uh, to remember when, when Black Mormons were not allowed to hold the priesthood, they were not allowed to hold certain offices in the church, and when they were kept out of the temple, with just basic temple blessings. And I was super happy in 1978 when they allowed black people to be members in full standing. The final one, uh, my grandmother was the daughter of a third wife. So I come 
directly from a polygamous ancestry. And it wasn't until I was 30 or 31 that I found out that the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, married over 30 women, 14-year-olds, other men's wives. I was That information was withheld from me for 30 years. And uh, I was super happy uh, that over time the church has distanced itself from polygamy because I think it's one of the most horrendous teachings that the church has ever had. So I'm super grateful the church changes. And I, it does. I have to push back because I think there's, there's some things that are misconstrued as doctrine that are policies. Um, and we... No offense, Timber, but like, try to fuck with John DeLynn on this. <laughs> like, like, John DeLynn, this is the most like classic Mormon comeback of like, well, those are p- p- policies, not, not, not doctrine. That's their way that they can slimily worm out of this. And John just named fuck ton of things that were never supposed to change. And that's what they cannot handle. And they go to the, p- p- the policy and it's like, nice try, Timber. Fuck with John DeLynn on this. But it's not just him saying this. This is Every Mormon historian that you can talk to will tell you that doctrine has changed when, where, and why. We, we, we see that as the church. Which thing, that, which thing that I just said was a misconstruction? Uh, blacks uh, not receiving the priesthood. Isn't that just a fact? Well, no, but you're saying it was a doctrine that changed. Well, the first presidency, the, the prophet and the first and second counselor prior to 1978, on multiple occasions, mm-hmm. signed statements saying that it was doctrine. That, that black people could not be members in full standing. That's the first presidency in the 1940s and 50s. Yeah, but that was a corruption of the... Joseph Smith baptized free men. He had a presidential platform based upon abolition. The Mormon church was basically an abolitionist entity that the government feared in the West for it, it, its first 50. That is some really scary retelling of history to say that the like the government of the United States feared the abolitionist movement of the Mormon church in the West? No, the people in the Utah territory, it was Brigham Young in isolation. This is where I would love to cut off card and be like, in the West, who who was in the West? Who was in the West that the US government feared? It was Brigham Young and they feared what about him? They feared his, he's wanting to abolish slavery in the West. That's such a weird thing for Brigham Young to do is say, bring your slaves out to Utah while we live in isolation. That's a weird thing for Brigham Young to do to say, let's enslave and completely massacre the Timpanogos tribe. That's a weird thing for Brigham Young to say, who's in the West, okay? To say when he was in the West that black people must be slaves. That is what God wants and is ordained for them because of the sins of Cain. So real scary retelling of history you got there, Cardin. And you can win any argument when you make up your own facts, but unfortunately you're not allowed to when I'm roasting you. He had a presidential platform based upon abolition. The Mormon church was basically an abolitionist entity that the government feared in the West for its first 50 years. The fact that it adopted some bad ideas of the curse of Cain because of Protestant influence coming from the South, especially when Parley P. Pratt returned as a missionary from the South, and the pressures put on Brigham Young as a governor of the state of Deseret, that is that is an abuse of It wasn't a state, it was a territory, but not that I expect him to know the difference. History. But, but, it, but it's your prophets, the people that you believe claim spoke to God and that I used to believe, they're the ones signing these statements. It's David O. McKay. It's it's people that you sustain as prophets, seers, and revelators. So how do you know when they're speaking as a man? How do you when they're, when they're excluding entire race of people from full participation? How do you know they're speaking for God or speaking for themselves? Until 
the social. I, I answered that right at the beginning of this whole, uh, this whole entire prompt. The, it's a two-part path. You receive revelation from a prophet. You go home, you pray about it, you confirm it. Like, I actually really appreciate this question because it gets to the root of epistemology. Should we let like, question answer this? I, I think that, I think that he, the, John's like, I've seen enough of your epistemology and it's not converting anybody. You're... John just did Cardin a huge favor, though, because he's like, if you really want to make your point about how like your church just like loves black people so much, why don't you stop talking and let the black person in your church talk just for a second? The human ego speaks when we want our environment and the bubble we're, we're in because everyone lives in a bubble. We don't want that bubble to change no matter what. Human beings are prideful. Human beings have ego. Everyone does. I look at some of the things our church leaders said, David McKay, right? Brigham Young, Joseph Fielding Smith. I know they weren't, you know, singing Kumbaya with black people. I get that. You know, I totally get that. But at the same time, I understand that people are also products of their environment. And I don't want to condemn someone who's not here to defend themselves. And in the same way, a hundred years from now, someone will look at us and they'll say, oh my gosh, I I, I can't believe you guys were using your, your, your cobalt iPhones built by child slaves. Please don't deny my humanity 100 years from now. Well, well look, look at it. Does anyone think that's a good point? Um, is anyone like, yeah, exactly. Yes, we should all do better about ethically sourcing the cobalt and copper and various minerals and diamonds and all kinds of things that are provided by slave labor in this world and nation all the way down to our fast food. That's absolutely true. That will come one day when enough people rise up and say these unaccountable corporations should stop doing these unethical things and let's hold them accountable. And the church will only be able to stop doing these harmful things when people also say, hey, let's stop this church from doing all of these unethical things and hold them accountable. Which side are you on, Kwaku? The side where people in 100 years are going to look back and say they fought for the right thing or they wanted to uphold the wrong thing. Here, you don't get to throw around like, hey, here's an unethical thing that we're all guilty of. And move on to the next question. And it is the endorsement that you lend to it. Cosmic entity that is Heavenly Father trying to channel information through a 99-year-old man in Salt Lake but City. But he does, yes? Oh, yeah, to you as well. Yeah, but he gets... To, it so gets... am I a prophet? I don't know, are you? <laughs> <laughs> if I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. Kwaku talks like somebody who's done mushrooms. Continue church has done good in the world. Agreeers, please step forward. Mm, we no, do a lot of humanitarian aid. Uh, we give wheelchairs out to people in, in like uh, third world nations. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of good we do. Um, I would agree that I would also say, you know, there's, there's some things that other religions do better than us. Mm -hmm. the, the LDS church does a great job helping out those who are needy. I think the church does do a lot of great humanitarian work and a lot of the time growing up, it was like, what can we do for our neighborhood? What can we do for our church community? What can we do for our fellow ward members? They just preach a lot of service qualities, which is great. Um, I, on the other hand, I think that, I mean, I hate to say they could do more, and that's the negative, but like with all of the money that they inherit from tithing, the Mormon church requires its members give 10% of their income for taxes to the Mormon church, and then they utilize that money you know it's coming. You know that people want it. I don't, personally, I don't need it to be said, but I know that the fans are waiting for it, so. They utilize that money to do things, you know, around the world. Yeah, 
Like bread. We're giving poor people bread. It's not like we're out building shopping malls or something. Um, like build malls. Um, but I think that they could do more with the money they're doing. Yes, they do a lot of good, but I think they could do even more good if they utilize that money better. When I personally had a surgery, and I had random members that I probably haven't even met from my church. They were leaving me gifts. They were leaving me it notes. Nice. They were leaving me cards. I do just that. get well soon. Not nothing, nothing huge, but it's just the thought that counts. And um, I didn't even have family that would leave me things like that. They're just very thoughtful people, and they're always thinking of the next guy. More of a net positive or a net negative? For me, it's going to be more of a net positive. And I know that's kind of surprising to probably a lot of people here. When I was in middle school, my parents got divorced. And uh, I think my life could have gone in a lot of directions at that point. And uh, I remember one of my Mormon church leaders has pulled me aside and he said, John, you're a star. And so many good Mormon adult leaders rally around, rallied around me, supported me, um, and uh, provided me with an amazing youth experience. I love that story for you, John. And the way that it's being told inside my brain is just some very theatric youth leader took you aside and said, John Delenya, star. Where this youth leader took aside, not just everyone at the church, but everyone in your entire high school, and one by one, anything that was going on in their life said, John, you're a star. Renee, you're a star. And the one whose last name is Zellweger, who you dated in high school, it really worked on her and you to also a certain extent. But but John, I'll give it to you, you made it big in the big city of Salt Lake. The big SLC knows the big JD. John, I knew you were a star from the moment I laid eyes on your tan hoodie. Told you to never change a thing. And maybe one day, kid, you'll make it to Jubilee. You don't even feel the need to shave for these appearances. That's how you know you've made it, kid. I went on to serve a mission in Guatemala. I learned a foreign language. I spent two years in a developing country. And, uh, and then just in my psychology training, people need identity, meaning, purpose, morality, a sense of spirituality, resolution about the afterlife, and friends and community. And one of the things that I regret is I've spent so much time trying to create secular community after being kicked out of the Mormon church. And I have not been able to do anything like what the Mormon church has been able to do. So until... Good plug for Thrive that I'm speaking at in March. Also good plug for Natasha Helfer's website. Check out. I'm speaking at her Reclaiming Sexuality event in April. Good plug for Lost and Found Club. They have a lot of great events for community building. We're trying, okay? So if you're going to say that, John, we at least got to plug what we do got going on. Also, subscribing to the new Unsell YouTube channel. Secular people are able to create communities that, that provide all these those things to the secular people. I think religions like the Mormon Church are going to continue to um, have an important place. Yeah, I could say that a lot of the opportunities that I experienced, a lot of the mentors, a lot of the people that helped the village that raised me was within my church experience. And so my mission, I had positive experiences. I've met a lot of incredible people, built a lot of good connections. But I don't know that, I mean, I know, yeah, there's humanitarian stuff, but I don't know if you can weigh that to the youth suicide in the LGBTQ community. I don't know if we can weigh that. It's just, it's just hard to weigh those things out of like, is the good better than the negative because of the spiritual trauma that it does cost the 
the emotional damage it does within families, within individuals. So I don't know that I could actually say which it does more of because the damage is so severe, but I know that there are positive experiences. Yep. The nuance loves this. I always say I didn't leave the Mormon church because I had a bad time. I left because it was an untrue thing. People who knew me never thought that I would leave the church, and I did have such positive experiences. A lot of Mormonism came easy to me, and I loved seminary and reading the scriptures, and so many things that make you a good Mormon were not hard for me. But once you realize just how it's a made-up thing, it's a thing that Joseph Smith made up that's a fraud that has continued to be perpetuated. Um, I didn't leave because I even thought it did harm. I just really left because I was like, oh, it's just not true. But it was devastating and shocking because like what John was saying, I don't know how I'm going to rebuild any type of semblance of a community outside of this. And we all struggle and we all do our best, right? So with that being said, uh, no system is perfect. Mormons, they get mad. They're like, why don't you go talk about some other institution? It's because this one is the one that I named my podcast off of. I've already been on the phone with the IRS for many hours to start my nonprofit. I, I really can't go back now. I can't have conversations like this with my family. It's not a way we speak with each other. We can't have this open dialogue of what we disagree about. And, you know, maybe other families are different, but my family. Liz, I hope if you're wearing that sweater around your family that you guys can always agree that it is a very gorgeous fashion forward choice that they should respect and no other arguments can be made. She's one. And, you know, maybe other families are different, but my family is very, very Mormon in that way where very reactive and uncomfortable topics don't go well. And if I want to talk about the history or, or people of LGBTQ, it's not a conversation I can have. So having this conversation with all of you today almost was like a substitute for that. So you need him to come to like family dinner. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. like, that'd be great. I'm not, I'm not cheap. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so that concludes our episode of Mormons versus ex-Mormons. If you guys want to embrace, shake hands, hug, whatever you guys need to do. Group. Right. Right. And then I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> All right. And here's John shaking hands with Arden. Dun, dun, dun. So I heard from the cast that they cut out at least two questions. And one of them was like, do you think that ex-Mormons are misrepresented? Cardin said something to the effect of like, either everyone's misrepresented or no one's misrepresented, but definitely not the ex-Mormons and went on a long rant about it. And it was another one of those moments where it's like, shouldn't we let the ex-Mormons decide how the church who has talked about them being led away by Satan for 200 years so if you remember, I told you I had a story about Bella, the inside scoop from the ex-Mormon crew who went down to LA to film this and told me the best thing your little ears are ever going to hear. So as you could tell, Bella was a convert and she was a little more nuanced and everything. She seemed like a total sweetheart. And so the cast told me that after the filming was over, Cardin was acting like uh, just a weird cringy guy who was trying to do like a trust fall into the group and everyone's like no thank you all right they're all all the ex-mormons are huddling and they're like man we need to go to lunch and go debrief about this and they see bella like over on the side standing there and they're like hey um bella do you want to go out to lunch with us so if you have any question about who won this debate ward radio or anything if somebody from your own mormon side who lives mormonism believes that it's true if by the end of the podcast she was i won't put words in her mouth but not interested in spending a second more of time with you guys and was like desperately excited to spend time with the ex-mormons 
I don't know. Is she enticed by Satan? She's hanging out with John DeLynn and Jillian Orr. So when she was at lunch, I heard that they're all sitting around and Bella, she didn't know who John DeLynn was. She didn't, she like didn't put two and two together about like Mormon Stories podcast or anything like that. And then like halfway through lunch, she's like, what's your name again? And he's like, John DeLynn, da, da, da. And then Bella like freaks out is the story I'm told. And she's like, what? You're that guy? you're that you're John DeLynn holy crap she didn't know that that's who she was doing this whole entire panel with and sounds really cool sounds like um you uh, are in a good word community in LA I was Mormon in LA for three years and I loved it and um if that's the community that you need right now in your place the Nuanto loves that for you a huge thank you to all the cast, Mormon and ex-Mormon, everyone involved in this project. Huge thank you to Jubilee for actually going forward and publishing this video, making it happen. I hope some good conversations come from this. So let me know what you thought of the Mormons versus ex-Mormons Jubilee. I'm excited to read your guys' comments. I want to read every single one because it's a little bit skewed on the Jubilee channel with too many Christians being like, Christians versus Mormons. I want to smack down. So if you're coming from Jubilee over to this video and you made it all the way to the end, I love you so much. So of course, you're going to subscribe to this channel because I put out all kinds of amazing content from my new home studio here. I have a nonprofit I'm running now, a 501c3 tax deductible. When you go to my donor box, just like hit all of the buttons and shove money my way so I can keep this whole production sustainable. You can check out this podcast, The Mormon History Hoedown, on Apple, uh, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash nuanceho. Thank you so much if you're a donor to this channel. Um, people who donate just a couple bucks a month, whether on Patreon or Donobox or Venmo, that means the world to me. Every little donation counts. So thank you guys so much. And it's been a really, really hard week. You know what I mean. Um, I'm on the edge of like at least uh, four to five mental breakdowns. But what keeps me going is everyone saying, carry your star. So if you need some help and support going through this week, you're a star. You are a star too. So I'll see you guys again real soon on the Mormon History Hoedown because you're subscribed and you hit the bell for notifications. Good, good, good. All right. Love you so much.